The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, um, this is uh, Maslow, 1961, in a short... uh, reflection on on, uh, peak experience. So he wrote, um, the goal of self-actualization seems to be simultaneously an end goal in itself and a transitional goal, a rite of passage, a step along the path to the transcendence of identity. This is like saying its function is to erase itself. Its function is to erase itself. Self-actualization, self-cultivation points to something greater, in other words. It erases itself. It erases itself and it points to something. Maybe... Maybe we even say enlightenment erases itself and points to something. What might it point to? I I think it points to love. When... um, When the self is not a preoccupation, what is left is everything else. What's left is everything else. And in that context, love becomes uh, much more natural. We're we're really... um, we're developing a practice, a way of being that feels very, very natural. Love feels natural. Renunciation feels natural. Samadhi feels natural. The awareness feels natural. And um, that's important. Yeah, this practice is meant to feel natural. It may be hard. It may be rigorously hard at times, but it's meant to feel natural. And we hear so much about choice in, in mindfulness um, to choose a response rather than a reaction, for example. And I honestly don't notice that I make better choices. It's more like my options are much better. It's more like I don't find myself kind of backed into karmic corners where there's dukkha in every direction, suffering in every direction. This is not a um, a state-based practice. It can sound that way at times, like we're trying to engineer, create state states, a momentary state of something. But we're really developing wholesome traits. Traits don't need our effort to be maintained. 
It's what I was pointing to in a way in the kind of that quality, the effortlessness, the, or the, the dimension of awareness that you can't turn on or off. Don't, it doesn't need your effort to be maintained. Yeah. We're in the same way. We're developing traits that don't need your effort to be maintained. I would say we're developing a trait of love, a trait of love. So where, where does the mind rest? You know, what, what's the, What's the default position of our attention where it's kind of like asking, where do you live? Where do you live? Where does your attention live when you don't need to do your life? Where does your mind go? And it tends to be a heavy mixture of self-referential thought, curating the image that others have of us, curating the image we have of ourselves. I am this, not that. It tends to go to the future, which is gripping, and um, we predict and simulate futures. We try to strategize a way through samsara, a way through this realm of the realm of threat and opportunity. And in that kind of that little bubble of self-referential thought strategizing, it feels very much like kind of little, little me contending with big Anicca, you know, big uncertainty, this enormous intimidating world. And, um, some of that strategizing and prediction and simulating is adaptive, no doubt, but we probably go quite a bit overboard. Where else might we live? Where else might the mind rest? Yeah. To what baseline might the mind return? what might become the kind of default position of our attention. The Buddhist suggestion is that perhaps it's the, the Brahma Viharas, the, the divine abodes, uh, the theme for this, this week. So loving kindness, a kind of, Warmth, compassion, shared joy, equanimity. These um, places for the heart to rest, all expressions of non-clinging facets of love. Um, I think of uh, love as... as, um, Like um, like our... our, uh, like our nervous system, just longing for the Dharma. Yeah, when I really consider, okay, what what is um, what does the Dharma feel like? What does this path feel like to me? Just me, it feels like relinquishment, and in the wake of that relinquishment, a kind of quiet love. 
And so we have these four Brahma-viharas, these facets of love. And uh, if I had to propose a fifth Brahma-vihara, Gil has not authorized me to do this, but if I had to propose a fifth, if that was my contribution to uh, American Buddhist discourse, the fifth Brahma-vihara would be something like um, puttering. (laughs) I think like, oh yeah, the four, that pretty much takes care of it. But I just, I need one more just puttering. Sometimes that's the place to rest for me. So these, um, these places of dwelling, they're meant to be varied enough so that one of them, one of them is always a good place for the heart to rest. One of them, no matter what's happening in this moment, one of those forces is medicine, the warmth, the compassion, the joy, the joy the equanimity, the peace, one of them, yeah, is, is, a, is medicine, a birth, a death, um, a marriage or a divorce, a war or a peace. One of the Brahma-viharas has your back. And there's no, um, there's no control in these mind states, clinging, is painful and um, trying to control. It's, it's painful. And it's really important to get that in our bones, like clinging is, is painful. We can kind of take that on faith. We hear that in Dharma talks, but we actually have to know that for ourselves. We have to sort of run into the dead end of clinging enough times with enough vivid awareness that we sense the pain associated with it. And that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that the best medicine is always to let go. It doesn't mean the best medicine is always to let go, but clinging is so painful. And we get worried, you know, if I don't cling, maybe I I won't get what I want. And maybe that's so, but you get what you actually need, just peace. So metta, um, loving kindness, this is, this is love in the face of goodness. Maybe we'd say compassion, karuna, love in the face of suffering. Mudita, sympathetic joy, love in the face of happiness. And upeka, equanimity as love in the face of the ungovernable, endless nature of samsara, this realm. When, um, when you consider the state of sentience, you know, just pleasure and pain, the waves of pleasure and pain, being human is like this. 
uh, love becomes just one of the most plausible responses to that predicament. And uh, as we'll see, some, some Brahma-Vahara practice highlights love. And sometimes the practice highlights everything that is not love, but needs love. And uh, just to bathe in this kind of, this love that is not born of clinging, that is not seeking to control uh, just that is deeply healing, really. You know, it, um, sometimes it just takes a moment of abiding in that to pierce a day or a month or a year or uh, a life of, uh, of pain. So Michelle, uh, Michelle McDonald, um, A beautiful teacher on this uh, in this realm of of metta. Um, she once um, described this yogi who, a long time dedicated practitioner, and um, and and loving kindness for herself just felt impossible, just so remote, you know, like just just like bizarre thought to actually express this kind of care for oneself and trying over not months, but years of practice, right? Years of practice. And then during uh, one session of a silent retreat, silent retreat in the silent hall, this yogi suddenly yelled out, I could feel it. <laughs> I could <laughs> this is so sweet. I could feel it for myself. She yelled it out in the hall, right? Um you're not allowed to yell it out in the Dharma hall, as sweet as it is. But um we can uh we can all yell it out on YouTube, yeah. I can feel it uh for myself. So this week, um, I'll start, I don't know what I just said, but we'll start tomorrow with metta and um, compassion, joy, equanimity for each of the four remaining days. Happy to, uh, to be with you this week. And um, I wish you all uh, a good day.